the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Glenn Beck. <sighs> free housing. Free college. Free college tuition, single-payer health care, doubling the welfare state, and minimum wage. Sound familiar? This is the same platform of any Democratic Socialist candidate here in the United States, whether it's Bernie Sanders, Ocasio-Cortez, uh, you know, and a whole fleet of new up-and-comers. But the platform, as familiar as it may sound, is actually the same platform as the Economic Freedom Fighters, or EFF, in South Africa. Now, this is a group of Marxist-Leninists who have now become the third largest political party in the country. Their leader has brought the EFF into the spotlight by tapping into populism. He fingered the white man as the answer to all of the problems, declaring at a rally back in January, go after a white man. Let me play the audio for you. But we are starting with this whiteness. We are cutting the throat of whiteness. Whiteness He um he also in that same speech uh started to uh talk about he is you know he's, he just wants to know who these white people are. He wants to know what religion they are. He wants to know where they come from originally. He wants to know how long they've been here. And then they will cut the throats of whiteness. Any of this sound familiar? Because this is the kind of stuff that comes from democratic socialists, Marxists, Leninists. It always does. You have to have class or race warfare. This is why it's incredibly important that we do not give in to our outrage, that we break our addiction to outrage. Because if we don't, we will be led down this same path where the only answer is kill the other side. The EFF's uh, or EFF's numbers and popularity have grown so large now that they were actually able to force the African National Congress to begin seizing white-owned land, land owned by white farmers, and giving it to black South Africans. The policy has now begun. The new state law says that white farmers will be offered fair market value for their land by the government. If they turn it down, the land will be seized anyway. Fair market value for a land uh, piece of land uh, that they have just seized uh, included $1.37 million for a piece of land that is valued in the open market at $13.7 million. It's only a tenth of what the farms are worth. Obviously, a slap in the face. After turning it down, they received this letter. Notice is hereby given that a terrain inspection will be held on the farm at 10 a.m. in order to conduct an audit of the assets and a handover of the farm's keys to the state. This farm is just the first of many. This is exactly what happened with Lenin and Stalin. What they do is they blame the rich farmers. Then they kill or take the land away from the rich farmers. Then they give those farms to the people. The people don't have experience that the rich farmer has. They were rich 
for a reason. Then the country starves. A report earlier this month showed that 139 white-owned farms have been targeted now for seizure. So what happens if the farmers refuse to leave their land? These are the moments right before catastrophe. And it all began with a small group of Marxist and Democratic socialists that were able to capture the national spotlight by harnessing hatred. We don't have land redistribution here yet. But the rise of democratic socialism and Marxism in South Africa should sound uncomfortably familiar. Look at what the new left is doing and saying here in America. They are categorizing each of us into groups and to identities and turning us one against the other. Social class against social class, race against race, gender against gender. Today's social justice is the undercover name for yesterday's bourgeoisie proletariat workers revolution. It is Marxism coming from the flank rather than straight ahead. You'll never hear this from a democratic socialist, but heed this warning. Marxism leads to violence every time. I ask you today to pray for the people of South Africa, both white and black, the whites that will be killed, the blacks that will have to live with it for the rest of their lives, and the children that will have to grow up now in chaos and violence. Pray for the people of South Africa, but also pray that we don't actually go over this cliff as we get precariously close to the edge. It's Tuesday, August 21st. This is the Glenn Beck Program. With a full understanding, with a full understanding of there are many things that I believe that I shall never say, but I shall never say the things that I do not believe. With the understanding of where the world is going and how easily it is to remove voices now for quote-unquote hate speech, I deliver this next uh, segment with nothing but respect for other people's viewpoints. But in return, I demand that they respect my viewpoint. If we cannot come to a place to where we can say, well, we see the world radically differently. But you're still my neighbor. If we cannot come to that place, the only thing left is to silence one another. And when that doesn't work, to shoot. Remember. First, you suggest, you nudge, then you shove, then you shoot. We are well into the shove category. I will shove your voice towards mine or out of the public square. There is uh, new, uh, new guidelines on that uh, they want to teach our children about safe sex. And as I read 
the guidelines, um, I thought to myself two things. One, the warning that I have told you over and over again from a woman named Paulina. She was one of the people that saved the Jews in Poland. She was about 90 when I met her. She had lived with this secret on what she had done and how many Jews she had saved. She started when she was about 16 years old in World War II. And when I met her, she was, she was old and gray, but still as shy and quiet. She couldn't talk about it for a long time until the Iron Curtain came down, because that would have been wildly unpopular to be a Christian that saved Jews in the former Soviet Union. So it wasn't until the 1990s that she uh, could tell her story or people could tell her story for her as she was very shy. I sat down with her with my family and I asked her, I believe the tree of righteousness is in all of us. What do I do to water it? She said to me, you misunderstand The righteous didn't suddenly become righteous. They just refused to go over the cliff with the rest of humanity. So as I read this today, I thought to myself, this is the cliff. This is one of them. And I will not go over the cliff with the rest of humanity, come what may. Here is the new LGBTQIA safe sex guide. Historically, when sex education was introduced to the general public, uh, content was focused on puberty education for cisgender people, heterosexual sex, pregnancy prevention, and a reduction of STIs. During that time, there was a great deal of stigma and discrimination associated with being lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, or asexual. Gender-inclusive terms such as non-binary and trans had yet to enter the mainstream language and culture. This historic context and rampant homophobia and transphobia created a foundation where most sex education curricula didn't acknowledge the existence of LGBTQIA and non-binary individuals. Sex programs were instead developed based on an assumption that those receiving the information were solely heterosexual and cisgender. That's why that uh, this uh, safe sex guide is aimed at understanding the nuance, complex and diverse gender identities, sexual orientation, attractions, and experiences that exist in the world, which vary across cultures and communities. We need an LGBTQIA-inclusive safer sex guide, because uh, traditional guides are often structured in ways that presumes everyone's gender, female, male, non-binary, and trans. No. Um, they uh, presume everyone's gender is the same as the sex that they were assigned at birth, male, female, or intersex, or differences in sexual development. Hmm. Sex education uh, resources often use videos and pictures and diagrams to uh, portray important information. Though these images and videos have historically failed to reflect and provide uh, information about same-sex and queer relationships. 
These guides also often unnecessarily gender body parts as male parts or female parts and refer to sex with women or sex with men, including those who identify as non-binary. Many individuals don't see body parts as having a gender. People have a gender. As a result, the notion, excuse this, uh, clinical uh, language. As a result, the notion that a penis is exclusively a male body part and a vulva is exclusively a, fail, a, ma- a female body part is inaccurate. By using the word parts to talk about genitals and using medical terms for anatomy without attaching gender to it, we become much more able to effectively discuss safe sex in a way that is clear and inclusive. For the purposes of this guide, we refer to the vagina as the front hole instead of using the medical term. This gender-inclusive language that's considerate of the fact that some trans people don't identify with the labels of the medical community. <sighs> okay. I, I'm not... <clears throat> no. No. No, no, no. I am not teaching my children, nor will I ever comply to removing the medical term and teach my children about sex using the words front hole. I'm sorry. No, I, I, you want to do that? That is fine. But I will not comply. When we first started having this conversation about homosexuality, I am a libertarian. I was never against gay marriage. What I am against is forcing a church or a group of people to live within the standards someone else's set, someone else sets. So... If you want to get married, go get married. No skin off of my nose. But do not come to my church and tell me what I must believe or do. My faith is sacred to me, and it is just as much a part of me as anything else. I cannot change what I believe and still be me. Now, it's interesting because, remember, you're teaching that gender is what you believe and you cannot change that. Well, then I would say my religious philosophy is the same. I wasn't born with it. It's what I believe. I will not tell you what to do, how to live, how to speak. Do not tell me what to do, how to act, what to say, how to think. You are not the boss of me, and I am not the boss of you. I happen to believe that all men are created equal, and we are endowed with certain inalienable rights, dare I say, those rights that come from God, not from man. And those rights include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
I am not a hater for saying no. No. When we first started talking about acceptance of homosexuality, the, the case was made, and I believe this, that you're born this way. Many people, I believe, are absolutely born feeling differently. I believe it. There's no scientific proof of it, but I believe it. I have, I've seen children. Children are born with their own personalities and their own, I don't know, their own thing. And no matter what, it's pretty hard to deny that natural thing that each of them come out with. They all have their own personality and their own style and their own thing. And every single homosexual person that I've ever known, loved, or, or just even met would not choose that lifestyle. Now, that's changing. But let's not get so arrogant that we forget how horrible it was for a long time to live in the shadows. I know people who prayed every single day. God, please remove this from me. You are who you are, but so am I. There's much more to say about this in a minute. First, let me take a break. I have to thank our sponsor. It's the Palm Beach Letter. By the way, did you see the uh, story today, Stu, about how Bitcoin is people in Turkey are dumping out of the lira now? uh, Because Mm. there's a big devaluation that is happening with the uh, Turkish lira. They're going to Bitcoin there's a few countries that are starting to uh, toy with this. Venezuela. If Venezuela would just say, we're going to Bitcoin, I think it would solve a lot of their problems. Um, but, you know, we'll see. But now it's starting to happen in Turkey. Uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency expert Tika Tawari from the Palm Beach Letter wrote about an announcement that would bring enormous amounts of money into Bitcoin at the time last year. It was trading at about $1,800. He said it could hit $10,000, and people thought he was nuts. It hit $20,000. We were in the middle of a, a horrible bear market at the time. Well, things are repeating itself. He's just announced, just like last year, another big event is happening, and he says it could take Bitcoin 10x or more by Christmas. Learn about cryptocurrencies, the best way to invest, what they are, why blockchain is a part of our future now. SmartCryptoCourse.com. Take that course now. SmartCryptoCourse.com or call 877-PBL-BECK. SmartCryptoCourse.com. Glenn Beck. You cannot mock truth isn't truth one day and then come out and uh, say the opposite the next day. That there, that the, the penis is not a, a, a male body part. Can't. Sorry. No. I will not go down your you know, a uh, uh, postmodernist wormhole. Yeah, and you seem to feel a little un- uh, uncomfortable saying terms like front hole. Yeah. Um, so, what do you think about frol and behold? Is that kind of no. like. Com- okay, let me. <laughs> no. I wasn't going to go this far. No, words have meaning. So. How about fragina, freeness, and frubies? I don't. And then <laughs> banus. No. That I think no. if you get if you go the vagina, people will know what you mean because they'll know what. I guess you have to also determine what side of the body it's on for some reason. So, vagina, freeness, frubies, 
and Banus. The new science. No. No. no I mean, you, no. You sure you don't like no, any I'm, of the... No. Hey, guess what? You have hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line when you want to sell your house. I guess maybe the right way to go is just to look for someone maybe you have a light acquaintance with who maybe or maybe you know what even better somebody whose face you saw on a bench that's a great way to pick somebody who's going to represent you in a hundreds of thousands of dollars level uh, of a transaction uh, actually maybe you should do something else maybe you should go to realestateagentsitrust.com realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go when you want to sell your house fast and for the most money uh, or if you're looking to buy you want to find someone who you can trust someone that knows what they're doing someone who shares your values glenn started this company a while ago uh, with the idea of there's got to be a better way there's got to be a way to find a good real estate agent that can represent me in a, in a transaction that I can trust, that can do a great job without all the hassle. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the result of that. Go there now and get the best real estate agent in your town. Realestateagentsitrust.com. This is the Glenn Beck right, Program. Stu, uh, we got a problem with vagina. Really? Yeah. I think it's a great term. Now it autocorrects to dragon. <laughs> yeah. Which I think she dragon. I think you could say she dragon, maybe. Maybe mm-hmm. that's accurate. Maybe that is Google telling us, yes, mm. vagina <laughs> tells you the location front and what it is. Yes. That's, like that. I'm just upset that these cisgender phones have not uh, yet adopted the new appropriate language of vagina, freeness, frubies, and banus. At some point, we have to get over our old cisgender heteronormative ways. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank, Thank you, you for finally Thank you. I'm going to clap for myself on yeah. that one. Wow, that was... You are... Mm-hmm. You are so Thank you. righteous. <laughs> Thank you. You know? Yeah, I'm great. I'm yeah. really great. And I'm, I think I'm signaling to everyone the virtuous nature I of what I'm doing. I think you are. And I, I think, think they understand and think, it, and, mm-hmm. and they feel it, and they give it back to really me good. because I'm wonderful. I think it's really good. Mm-hmm. Hey, um, by the way, speaking of uh, virtue signaling, I'm having a hard time uh, with the whole uh, Asia Argento story because of Rose McGowan. Okay, so if you don't know, Asia Argento, she is a woman who uh, was one of the big accusers of Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, she is an actress and uh, she was, uh, you know, probably the the most outspoken. Mm-hmm. Um, her and Rose McGowan were probably mm-hmm. the two most outspoken about. And Rose McGowan at the time tweeted, you know, you have to believe the women. Um, you have to call out the abusers right away and you have to distance yourself from them. Otherwise, uh, you're just a bad human being. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Do we have the other the other tweet? Uh, not the believe women, but the yeah, I heard it is believe survivors. Apologize for putting your career and wallet ahead of what was right and grab your spine and denounce. If you do not do these things, you are still a moral coward. OK, so that's Rose McGowan. Well, yesterday, Rose McGowan, after it was found out that her good friend, uh, who is she using those tweets uh, to defend against, you know, Harvey Weinstein accusations. Uh, her friend was now accused of uh, diddling an underage boy and, um, and you know, pretty much paying him off $380,000. <laughs> that's, that's more than pretty much. That's a pretty good well, pay, payday there, I, I would know. say. 
uh, $380,000 is mm-hmm. a, it's a, it's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It seems like you don't typically, I mean, this is what we heard every single time, uh, that there was a, a, an accusation against the mail. You don't pay someone $380,000 unless mm-hmm. you've done something wrong. We certainly heard it about Donald Trump mm-hmm. when he paid $140,000 to, uh, Stormy Daniels. Mm-hmm. We heard that over and over again. That you don't pay someone one hundred forty thousand dollars unless you've done something wrong. Yeah. So, uh, so now Rose, McG- now Rose McGowan has come out with a new tweet, mm. and this new tweet is: None of us know the truth of the situation, and I, <laughs> I'm sure more will be revealed. Be gentle. Wait a minute, Rose. Did you just call supposed- herself a moral coward? Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, are, were you not just telling us that you had to believe the survivor? Yeah. It's interesting because when you have personal information about one of the two individuals involved in one of these situations sometimes you judge it differently huh maybe the additional information you have causes you to pause and judge the situation not out of anger and moral outrage but as factual uh, information that you've received about a person and you an know, individual and, and you I, know hang on it it mm-hmm. might also be that you don't even know the person but you say hey there should there should be a process we shouldn't just be a lynch mob. Yeah. I mean, that should be your default mm-hmm. position, in my view. It mm-hmm. has not been the view of our society for the past year and a half. Mm, but now that it's turning around on the actual hashtag MeToo founders, mm-hmm. it is starting to be, well, wait, let's have some due process. We saw this with uh, with Al Franken. Mm-hmm. We saw this with uh, Lena Dunham had a situation like this where mm-hmm. she was tweeting defense of someone accused. Well, Al Franken is Al Franken is still being excused. I don't know if you heard Chelsea Handler, uh, but uh, Chelsea Handler. Had, I can almost always say no to a question like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, here's what she has said now about Al Franken. You mentioned the Me Too movement. Um, when it comes to the Democratic Party, they have tried to purge right uh, politicians who have faced allegations. I know you were a supporter of Al Franken in the past, and he hasn't ruled out running again. Should he? I I'm a, I, I love Al Franken, so yes, I would love for Al Franken to run again. Really, I despite the, yes, I, I mean, there were like eight allegations of, against him. Of women putting their arm. I don't want to um, stop, diminish. stop, stop, stop. No. They weren't about him putting his arm around. It wasn't the picture. It's what that woman said happened to her all during a comedy tour before that picture was taken. That was the last insult. Remember, he assaulted her backstage and forced himself on her and jammed his tongue down her throat. Allegedly. Allegedly. Mm -hmm. But we have to believe the accuser, don't we? (laughs) Well, you know what? No. So there were eight people that said this about al franken all right now go back to her of women putting their arm i don't want to um diminish anyone's legitimate claim of feeling like they've been assaulted because that's your feeling oh. but i think there is a the very feeling? big difference of a man putting his arm around you he's a comedian i've touched people's breasts and genitals I can't imagine how many times in photos. That's just, <laughs> that's that doesn't Very excuse cool. it, but it's something that's not a rape. That's not sexual assault. And it's not repeated behavior over and over again. Okay. It so, is a f- so wait, so wait a minute. <laughs> so is she saying because she's a comedian, because she's a celebrity, she can just grab people's genitals? She's. I don't know. Can she's you saying just, you can do that, but she's saying she has. Done she it. has done that. So she's not necessarily giving advice, uh, but she is bragging about how many she may have grabbed in the past. 
she is bragging about that. Yes. Okay. All right. I'm just trying to just just trying to think if there's anything else that seems similar to that. But now that now it's totally now it's totally okay. And did you notice she also said, "I don't want to dismiss anyone's legitimate claim." Oh. Uh, legitimate is that legitimate rape i remember when that used to sink politicians Mm -hmm. and we'd never hear from them ever again but she didn't say legitimate claim of assault she said legitimate claim of feeling Mm -hmm. as though you were assaulted yes because that's just feelings no see this is the problem with (laughs) postmodernism. as ben ben shapiro says facts don't care about your feelings it's a fact you were either assaulted or you were not assaulted. You can feel that you were assaulted all you want, but that's really a problem with you. And I'm not going to delve into your sickness. I am not going to verify uh, and condone and coddle your illegitimate feelings of being assaulted if the assault didn't happen the same way we don't coddle someone who did uh, assault someone who doesn't feel like they did anything wrong correct you don't it's about what happened not about right. how they it's feel about the it the facts right. not the feeling and you know look i think she's actually right in the aspect of there is a major difference between chelsea handler jokingly grabbing somebody in a photo and somebody who is actually assaulted, like from Harvey Weinstein. There is Still. a line there. That doesn't mean mean that either one is a good idea. But there's you, clearly you, a difference. Do you know anybody in your life? I mean, we know comedians. Do you know anybody you know, in your life that can legitimately I mean, say, I can't even count the number of people I've grabbed by the genitals <laughs> well, in a photograph? I happened to be watching an Office episode mm-hmm. uh, the other day. And in the Office episode... Uh, Dwight and Pam are trying to decipher whether Jim is attracted to the new office worker. And uh, in this uh, in this debate where they're trying to figure it out, uh, Dwight takes on the task of trying to assess mm-hmm. after they're together. I got it. And he fakes falling down and he grabs for something. And I mean, he grabs Jim's. Yes. You know, his his freeness uh, mm-hmm. several times. Uh, that's on a that's and, on a TV show, right? I know she's saying in photographs, right? I can't exactly, say. right? So what my point though is that if it's a you know there's a uh, there is a it would be ridiculous, obviously, and and if someone didn't want it to happen or didn't think it was funny, mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. would be obviously very bad. Sure. However, uh, you know, I'm not I I wouldn't justify what she's doing there. However, I can see. You know, she's known for sexual comedy. I think guys, generally speaking, don't really care. I, I, you know what I mean? Like, I, mm. you know, I don't know that that's ever happened to me. But she if it did, it wouldn't really bother. Our genitals. Right, like, you'd be our like, gen- what the hell? Get off me. She baby. said breasts. Right. <laughs> uh, our genitals. Are, right. are those uh, exclusively male, you cisgender white pig? I'm just saying that I'm trying to come up with a circumstance. My point, uh-huh. however, mm-hmm. is more, I guess, targeted at the idea that there is a difference. Right. There is, there's no way there's no story I can tell you in which a justified end of like, oh, and, and then he uh, took off his bathrobe and forced her into the shower. There's, there's not like a there's not a scenario. Mm-hmm. So there is a difference. And we've pointed this out many times on the show. 
that there is a major difference between what Al Franken did and what Harvey Weinstein did. And they shouldn't be lumped no, in as the on. exact same thing. The, uh, talking Harvey about the photo Wein- part of it. Yeah, yeah. the photo part. The yeah. photo part with Al Franken is not the part that personally disturbs me. Mm-hmm. It is what happened leading up to the photo. Yeah. And, and you know, that's you know, assault. Get, I mean, there's been a wide range of this. There's a spectrum. We now like understand kind of the idea of the spectrum um, from, you know, different, uh, you know, medical situations. And there's a spectrum here. That doesn't mean that any of it's good. But I mean, when you're talking about like Louis C.K. is much different than Harvey Weinstein. Uh, you know, uh, I think I mean, Glenn no, Thrush, who was a, one of the reporter, was much different than anything that we saw from, uh, you know, the, the worst of the worst. And like the idea that all of those are lumped in under this thing, me too, is a problem. I think that society has not figured out how to deal with yet. And so there's an element there uh, where you could say, okay, well, what she's saying has some some merit. However, Chelsea Handler is not a fair arbiter, and she's just defending this person because she likes him. Mm-hmm. I think we all recognize that the reason mm-hmm. she's coming up with these wonderful excuses on these things is because she likes Al Franken. And if it was a conservative doing the exact same thing, she'd be on Twitter saying how horrible they were, and they are all mass rapists, and they should all go to prison. And that's the problem. It, it, well, she may know Al Franken. There's a difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, I've had several conversations with Bill O'Reilly. It's not that I know Bill O'Reilly. I know other people as well, and I don't defend them. You know, it's not that you know them Mm -hmm. or that I agree with their politics. I think in the worst case scenario, it is. Yeah, I mean, like even I mean, you you talked about Roger Ailes many times, and I I don't think I've heard you put up a defense of Roger. Nope. uh, Even though you knew him very well, where, you know, Bill, you you've you've known fairly well as as well over the years. And, you know, again, when you are involved in a situation uh, where someone has been accused of something terrible, someone you know well, you should insert your personal knowledge of that person into your analysis of the situation. That without, does not mean you get they get a free pass for anything they've done. Dismissing facts, absolutely. That it's is not my feelings that that steer me and say I don't believe that about. Uh, Bill, mm-hmm. it's the fact that we've traveled with him and been around him for a long time, and none of us ever saw anything like this ever, and can't even imagine it. Doesn't mean it's not true; didn't happen. But I don't know that, and I'm not going to judge him. Exactly, and everybody knows. I mean, you know, the office is a good example. The you know uh, Packer who comes in all the time and is like talking about how he's having sex while he's women on the road, and he's always groping people and making inappropriate jokes. Everybody knows a guy like that, and if they got accused of something, you'd say that does not surprise That's me at all. Right? I mean, that like, is Donald that, Trump. <laughs> is, come on, it, well, are you really? Was anybody surprised by Stormy Daniels? Okay, it did happen, didn't happen. I don't know, but it wouldn't be surprising if it did. Because we know yeah. his character and what he's what he's all about. He's had, uh, he was famous for his yes. sort of womanizing yes. ways and talked about it on Howard Stern openly. Yeah. But that's different than, you know, you know, if you had heard someone talking like Trump talked on the bus constantly, yes. you would think, okay, that I, this person is, is yes. might be doing these things. Yes. However, that's, you know, not necessarily the way he's always talking. All right. Okay, so let me tell you about our sponsor this half hour. It's Casper Mattress. Middle of the night, you're tossing and turning, you're not sleeping, you're drenched in sweat, 
you could, you know, turn up the AC or you can have a fan on you, but why don't you get rid of your heat-trapping mattress? Sleep cool and comfortable on a Casper mattress. All Casper mattresses use premium foams that relieve pressure and help align your body so you fall asleep feeling comfortable and waking up feeling refreshed. Breathable material. That means you're guaranteed to sleep cool all summer long. It ships in a free box so small you're not going to believe it actually has a mattress in there. It makes it easy for you to get the uh, mattress from your front door to your bedroom. And you can try it now risk-free for 100 nights. If you don't love it, they're going to come and they'll pick up the mattress and refund everything. No questions asked. So sleep cool and comfortable every night. Get a Casper Try it for free for 100 nights. Free shipping, free returns. Now, go to Casper.com and use the promo code BECK. $50 off the purchase of your select mattress so you can begin trying it out. Casper.com, promo code BECK. Casper.com, terms and conditions to apply. We have some uh, new suggestions for uh, new, uh, new terms for body parts. You had a problem with Froll? Well, I had a problem with Froll because it autocorrects to Dragon, uh, which uh, doesn't work. That would be front hole. Right. Uh, fro- but, we started that to Froll or Behole. Yeah. Um, but uh, Froll doesn't work because I also have my mouth and my, you know, my talking- nose holes and my ocular cavities. So we, we've been going with Frouth, uh, oh, frouth. For, for mouth. Um, but uh, Frugina, Freeness, Frubies, pretty acceptable. Right. Uh, the Banus. Is something that people are talking about. We've also mm-hmm. been hearing from people at World of Stew for their terms that they want to yeah, implement okay. here. And right. the, the froveries, froveries have been, I think, acceptable. And uh, fresticles is one I think. Okay, froveries, <laughs> froveries aren't in the front; they're inside. <laughs> I, look, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor here. Well, I'm just it doesn't take to, a doctor. Uh, we remember where do you feel they are? That's, I think, the more important pre- question. Not where they are, but how do you? Where do you feel they are? I feel that they're in the refrigerator in the little egg plastic egg thing. Oh, fridge for, for ovaries works perfectly then. Okay, good ovaries in the fridge. <laughs> I like that. Okay, good. There you go. All right, <laughs> another problem solved. Welcome to Postmodernism 101 on the Glenn Beck program. Glenn Beck. Washington Times published an interesting op-ed a few days ago. It, it's a list of conditions criteria. That, in author L. Todd Wood's words, um, would be used to destroy society. He said, quote, if I want to destroy an enemy society and I had a long term focus, I wanted to do it, you know, stealth and effectively, I would make the society destroy itself uh, and I would take away the ability to it for it to defend itself. So I would do the following. Step one, I would destroy the religious ideals that brought the country together and held it together, allowing it to thrive and be exceptional. In short, I would destroy in the West Christianity. Two, I would destroy the family, the fabric of society. I would tear apart the nuclear family that produced stable children, future contributors to the nation's wealth and power. A society that does not reproduce is a dying society. Three, I would promote the concept of toxic masculinity and extremist feminism. What better way to make a society less masculine, less able to field a strong military? In short, I would feminize the male population, making it less effective in battle. Four, I would destroy the education system. I'd plant Marxist professors throughout the university system, teaching new generations nothing about American history, but filling their heads full of communist nonsense and propaganda. They would know nothing of Washington, Lincoln, or Jefferson, but they would know of Malcolm X and Lenin. 
Five, I would divide the races. What better way uh, and what better method of dividing and conquering than to foster a race war, filling minorities' heads full of lies of pre-police brutality and developing a culture of hate towards law enforcement? Six, I would corrupt the federal government. I'd fill the intelligence and security services with traitors to the nation's founding. When any political figure arose that threatened my diabolical agenda, I would use these corrupt agencies to target and frame any rising star who loved America, even if he was a duly elected president of the United States. Seven, I would take away the population's meanings uh, or means to defend itself, meaning I would take away their guns. The fear of an armed population would stop any invasion. I'd have to get rid of this problem. Eight, I would destroy self-reliance and ingenuity by making over half of the population dependent on the government, unable to take care of themselves. Nine, I would use big tech to completely remove any viewpoint or ideas that were associated with the old America. I would ban them from the Internet. Heck, I'd take over the Internet. I'd work with um, uh, tyrannical powers all over the world to develop Internet censorship to eventually prevent any opposing views to be heard by anyone. Ten, I would corrupt the nation's leadership with money, finding those who would sell out their country for pieces of silver. I'd make sure that they were strategically placed in powerful positions on all sides. I'd shell out money through the legislature to make sure no laws were passed to oppose my agenda. Eleven, I would, promo- I would promote the disrespect of the nation's symbols. Yes, I would have people kneel during the national anthem. I would burn the flag, tear down statues of the nation's history. I would make sure people hate the very fabric of the nation that gave them such wealth and power. Twelve, I would find a straw man or a straw country who was also a malicious adversary to America though much less powerful, and I would focus all the negative energy and recriminations towards this straw man country. In this manner, the targeted nation would be ignorant of my true intentions. He warns in his article, everything I've just written is happening right now in front of our eyes. It is difficult to disagree with him. It's Tuesday, August 21st. This is the Glenn Beck Program. My new book, Addicted to Outrage, uh, comes out here in, uh, in the next couple of weeks. September 18th is when it's available in stores. I ask you to go to Amazon and pick up a copy. It is not just a look at uh, what's happening today. Some of it is very, very funny. Some of it uh, is, is pretty terrifying. It's a look at today, tomorrow, and our history. And it asks, some, it asks in the middle of it five important questions uh, that we have to ask ourselves as a nation. If we want to save the Western society, is it worth saving? Are we good or are we bad? I use the example in the book of Winston Churchill. I'm a huge Churchill fan. But if you were from India, Churchill was a monster. So which is he? Is he good or bad? Arthur Herman is uh, the author of Gandhi and Churchill, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. But he's also the author of one of my favorite books, uh, Freedom's Forge. It came out a few years ago. Uh, And I've wanted to have him on the show for quite some time. But uh, he's here with us today. Arthur, welcome to the program. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing very well. It's a pleasure to be on. Hey, are you going to send me a copy of your new book? Uh, yes, I will. If you'd send me a 
a copy of of you know Freedom's Forge signed, I would I would oh, I would I'd cherish it. Delighted to do that. Uh, yeah, I, uh, Freedom's Forge, and we'll get into it a little while. Um, Freedom's sure. Forge is is just a tremendous, tremendous uh, history book that I think everybody should have. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, let me let me go back to Churchill and uh, and Gandhi. Sure. If you are from you know India, you see Gandhi completely different. Not Gandhi, uh, Churchill completely differently than those in the West do. So, yeah, I think that's probably true, especially today. I would say less so uh, in the uh, uh, during the wartime period uh, when you saw that there was a lot of respect, including by Gandhi, uh, for Churchill, for his defiant stand against the Nazis and his ability to really rally Britain, which a lot of Indians thought, hey, you know, Britain, it's on the decline. It's uh, losing its uh, credibility around the world. Uh, it's an imperialist power, and uh, they were, I think, quite shocked and surprised with the way in which Churchill was able to rally the British people and then basically rally the free world uh, to fight against Nazism. But you're right, today a lot of the focus is, is on Churchill you know, as a white supremacist, as supposedly the guy who, who triggered the great Bengal famine uh, during the course of the war in 43, 44. You, d- you, about this you don't think so? But no, I don't think so at all. I think what you come to realize is about the great Bengal famine is it was a concatenation of, of bad circumstances, the loss of uh, Burma, which had been uh, India's main source for, uh, for rice imports, and a lot of mishandling on the ground by the uh, British bureaucracy. The civil service bureaucracy basically failed to deal with the problem that for 30 years they had been assuring Indians they could deal with. I mean, it's big government in action, Glenn, and uh, they failed utterly until Churchill appointed uh, Archibald Wavell as viceroy, and he managed to turn the situation around with Churchill's encouragement. So, you know, Churchill, if I may speak on this subject, you know, people talk about the similarities between Churchill and Donald Trump. And I don't think sometimes that's a bit overblown. But mm-hmm. Churchill had his own version of tweets, which was his outbursts, uh, especially in front of the War Council, in which he, was, he would denounce uh, India for uh, you know, bothering him about the food shipments and about the need to divert uh, food supplies to India when they were needed uh, to uh, uh, for for the armed forces, and he was capable of saying some quite shocking things. And so, uh, just as people focus on Trump's uh, tw- Twitter feed and think that that's a clue to understanding his mind and his policies, um, there's been a tendency to look at Churchill's kind of irritated outburst. He had a lot in his mind in 1943. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. And having to deal with a crisis far, far away uh, in a a country which was already uh, plunged into chaos because of civil disobedience um, kind of uh, uh, strained his patience. And so he said things, let off steam, that historians today, particularly certain Indian historians, capitalize on as a way to promote the idea that uh, that Churchill was somehow 
either responsible for or even the architect of the Great Bengal Famine. It was a terrible famine. What one and a half million people died. So, um, but Churchill's Churchill's responsibility for this shrinks away when you when you look at the what the real situation was and understand it in the course of. Of, of the history of India under British rule. Talking to one of my favorite um, authors and historians, senior fellow of the Hudson Institute, Arthur Herman, um, uh, author of uh, Freedom's Forge, also um, Gandhi and Churchill. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that all great men uh, are both good and bad when you look back uh, through the eyes of today's history, that... There, there is no perfect man. Gandhi was a racist as well. He didn't see, he didn't see the plight of the um, the Africans, uh, which were which was very similar to his own in India. He didn't no. want to be seated on the same train car with an with a with an African. Yes, or as they as the the derogatory term of the day, uh, the equivalent of N word for us, kaffirs. And uh, Gandhi was fairly contemptuous of the right. of the blacks in South Africa. But that doesn't there. that and doesn't explain in the book. And it explained in the book uh, his pro. He began his civil disobedience campaigns in South Africa uh, to call attention to the plight of Indians uh, living there, who he believed, I think correctly, should be treated with the same rights as any other British subjects. But his big complaint was is that they had been relegated on the other side of the color line, away from white uh, inhabitants and uh, uh, citizens in South Africa, but in relegated to the same side as, uh, as South Africa's blacks. He wanted Indians pushed to the correct side, the upper side. Right. Uh, with nothing to say about the blacks. Very little to say yeah. about that. It was not his concern, and uh, it was not an issue that... Uh, that really uh, motivated his multiple visits to with uh, with the British uh, with regard to the Indian presence in Africa generally. Uh, his, he was a nationalist. I mean, and this is one of the things that I think both he and, as I explained in the book, both he and Churchill were both very strong nationalists. And Gandhi has come to be given a kind of this universalist, globalist, kind of agenda because of his pacifism and his yeah. belief in passive res- resistance. But he was an Indian nationalist from beginning to end. So, and that's what drove him. And, and that's what that, that was his legacy. So do you walk away feeling the same way about Gandhi and Churchill that um, you could just concentrate? What I'm driving towards is yeah, we're, we're asking now if America is a good place or a bad place. It's both. It's both. It's it's what are we are we getting better or are we getting worse? I think we're getting better in the long term. We're getting much better as a people. But we've done horrible things. We've done really amazing, great things. We're we're neither bad nor good. We're both. And that's what the proper study of history should bring, Glenn, and also of the study of historical figures. I think you're absolutely on the mark here. And, you know, and I've written about uh, look at, I look at my record of biographies, the Gandhi and Churchill book, my book on Douglas MacArthur, uh, reaching back almost 20 years, my book on Joseph McCarthy. You know, I did a book on McCarthy, and what I explained in there was is that, yeah, there was a lot of bad about McCarthy. There was a lot of good, too. He was on to a real issue, namely the communist conspiracy to subvert the U.S. government. 
um, and the way in which it had infiltrated into the federal government so, in the 1930s and 1940s. But and, and people were outraged because in many cases people want you know a villain they want uh, right, saints and saints and villains. Yeah. And, so can, can, uh, so can and, we? And it's really hard to do. It's really hard with a handful of characters in history. I think you know who they are. Yeah. It's really hard to find ones in democratic Western societies who who fit who fit either one of those bills. So let me let me break here and then we're, I want to pick it up because I, I think McCarthy is a really great example. I first started reading about McCarthy and 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 realizing, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's not this this, you know, black cloaked Darth Vader, you know, villain every step of the way. He he really did have some things right. But if we can't recognize that nuance, because we're now in a society where you're either 100 percent in the boat or on the train or you're 100 percent off the train. And that's yeah. that's not where a healthy society should be. We'll we'll pick it up uh, there when we come back. Arthur Herman, uh, you must read his uh, his work, uh, especially start with Freedom's Forge. It's just remarkable. We'll talk about it here in just a second. Let me tell you about our sponsor this half hour. It's Goldline. Uh, Goldline's new Silver Maple Flex um, is a bar that is great, made by the Canadian Mint. It allows you to break off smaller pieces for barter and trade. Uh, trade. It's about the size of a uh, credit card, and you can just snap it apart like that. And now you have, uh, instead of uh, you know a credit card size bar of of silver you have little teeny pieces of silver and it comes in what is this this is a uh uh one quarter ounce it comes in one tenth one twenty ounces and so you can use this to barter because if if things ever get really bad i mean god help us but remember yesterday we were talking to that woman from uh, venezuela who said i just want to remind you uh venezuela was uh like america and we went nuts and look at us now and they are starving to death now well that could never happen here luckily glenn yeah luckily it'll never happen never never will happen all done by the royal canadian mint i want you to check it out call gold line see if it see if it's right for you uh else can be held in your ira for uh, precious metals it's goldline.com call them now goldline.com 1-866-GOLDLINE 1-866-GOLDLINE or goldline.com Author, historian, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, Arthur Herman, uh, is uh, joining us. Um, he's written several books. Uh, you need to read them all. Freedom's Forge, uh, Gandhi, and Churchill are two that I can't recommend uh, highly enough. Um, Arthur, do, do you can you draw parallels between today and uh, the Red Scare. Are we are we facing a new form of of uh, McCarthyism? Except it's now the hunt for those who will not abide with uh, postmodernism. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And what we come to realize is when you really study the history of intellectuals, right? And that'd be an interesting book, wouldn't it? Sort of yeah. intellectuals through history, particularly in the modern age. And what you come to realize is is that contrary contrary to the uh their own self image they don't tend to be really supporters of liberty and freedom um you look at the role that uh, uh for example german academics played during the nazi period mm-hmm. when they basically closed ranks with the government expelled their uh, uh their their jewish colleagues and signed petitions lining up uh in support of the third reich 
Um, during the 1930s, you had a similar group think on the far left, supporting communist and fellow traveler organizations signing petitions, which got them into trouble in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the 1950s, when there were attacks on uh, uh, dissent and uh, scrutiny from government about the curricula that was being used in classes, in sociology, and in the social sci- social sciences generally, in literature, uh, the universities, with a few exceptions, basically went along with the, uh, with the attacks. When Bertrand Russell, for example, the British philosopher, um, was, uh, w- was denied uh, uh, entry into the country because of his atheism. There were some academics who stood up for his right to speak, even if they disagreed, like Sidney Hook, and there were others who did not, many others who didn't. And I think what we're seeing right now is that the radicalization, the long march through the institutions, remember that line from the 1960s, mm-hmm. has really come into its own in the American Academy in the humanities, in the liberal arts, and in the social sciences. And what they've done is to create a kind of, I'm going to use this term, intellectual gulag, in the sense that if you don't adhere to the party line, if you or even even waver from it or express doubt about these, about the wisdom of having such a party line, then punishment is meted out to you, not beatings and uh, attacks, unless, of course, you're Charles Murray, um, but with being silenced and being denied tenure and being and coming under attack. The difference, of course, Glenn, and the irony is, is that this is all being done, not as a result of government pressure <laughs> being put to bear on the institutions, as was the case, you know, with the universities in Nazi Germany or universities during the so-called Red Scare. This is pressure coming from within. From administrators and but if radicals. You, if you look at activists. if you if you look at Nazi Germany, though, a lot of that was internal pressure as well, not just from the government. I mean, especially when it comes to science, the oh, uh, true. you know the doctors right. and the nurses right. were. That's right, know. which I've written about, as you know, written about in my yeah. idea of decline book yeah. about the inf- inf- the influence of race science and eugenics, all done, of course, in the interest of a progressive progress, yeah. uh, progress okay. uh, and, and progressive ideologies, including socialism, but with hor- horrendous effects later on. We can we hang on just a second. We continue our conversation in just a moment with Arthur Herman, uh, author and historian. Continues in a minute. Stand by. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. Historian and uh, just fantastic, fantastic Arthur, uh, uh, author, Arthur Herman, is with us. He's senior fellow at the uh, Hudson Institute. He has written The Idea of Decline in the West, uh, MacArthur, uh, 1917. I mean, it's about Wilson. You had me at hello. Uh, and... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, and uh, one of my favorite books, uh, Freedom's Forge. Welcome back to the program. Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about um, the cycle of American history and and where where do you think we are, Arthur? Have we been here before, and do we survive? <laughs> okay, that's right. Put uh, put your historian uh, on the spot. Yes, and make him pull out his crystal ball. That's right. Well. I will tell you, I, I with you, I'm like you, I share a great optimism about where the American experiment is headed long term. I think we're in a very unhealthy place right now. 
Um, but these have happened in American history. Um, you know, we had a we had a had a moment like this in 1860. By the way, that is not to say that I think we're on the verge of a 1860-1861 type of uh, national catastrophe. But I think that the air, the aspect of division that's taken place here, a division which really is going to be very difficult for us to resolve with kind of the normal politics and the way in which uh, these issues have been resolved in the past. You know, we had terrible divisions during the McCarthy period. You know, people were routinely accusing Truman and his band of advisors of being traitors, of being basically the tools of Moscow. Uh, we had terrible divisions. You remember them in 1968, you know. I was a kid. I was thoroughly radicalized, tried to convince my parents that I needed to go to the Chicago convention. They said, you're 11 years old. I don't think you're going to go to the Chicago <laughs> convention on your own. But I watched, you know, I watched the convention, watched the riots, the coverage, the riots of the media there. Abraham Ribicoff telling, you know, Richard Daly that his police were using Gestapo tactics on the streets of Chicago. I saw all that live. But there was a, um, but there was a, there was, we hadn't lost the entire university system. We hadn't had our no, children hadn't. indoctrinated into, in the, this postmodernist uh, stuff that is absolute poison. It is, and I think also we didn't have the kind of social media. Everybody trashes social media. I think social media, in the end, uh, has been a tremendous benefit, and I think I it agree. will be a very powerful and constructive tool. But what it has, what has happened in the short term, and this is what happened with the printing press, you know, in the 16th century, is that it's become a means by which every kook and every um, uh, every uh, angry person now is able to express themselves in more and more violent and more and more extreme terms. And I think what we've reached is a kind of cycle of verbal violence in our media, not just the social media, but the mainstream media. Turn on CNN and look and see what happens there, or MSNBC. And I think we have a president right now who, unlike other politicians, um, doesn't try to avoid conflict. Uh, and, you know, and veers towards compromise at every turn, he seeks out conflict. And I think that's one of the reasons why he was sent to Washington uh-huh. by the voters, was that they said, look, you're going to be our bull in the China shop because uh, there's a lot of crockery there that badly needs breaking. And we're, in the, we're, we're watching the breakage and the reaction of those whose livelihoods, whose careers, whose worldviews were built on that old... Uh, decaying uh, Washington establishment, and I think there's going to be a fight to the finish here, Glenn. So I, I don't think it's. I don't think. I don't think that Trump won't quit. I don't think no. Mueller and the political establishment are going to quit. I think they're too committed into this, and it's going to be a fight as to which to, to the end when which one edifice or the other collapses. I think the Washington establishment is the one that's going to be the loser in all this, and. I think that we are going to come out a lot stronger with a renewal of the American experiment as a result of it, but it's going to be a, it's going to be an ugly process. So how do you, uh, when you have people now on both sides that are so angry, so they feel like they've been yes. squashed, not listened to the other side, isn't listening. So why should I listen to you? Um, you know, there's such distrust. I mean, right now, you know, I think the average, the average Democrat 
feels very much like I do. They're tired of all of this stuff. They just want more welfare. That doesn't make them a communist or a socialist. They just want bigger state programs. Um, and the same with the, the, the right. They feel like there is a loss of their culture and their heritage, which does not make them a, a, a Nazi or an identitarian. It, it makes them a concerned citizen about, hey, my culture is is important, too. And so yeah. we're we're taking those real things and pushing them off and making them nonsense to the other side. And that's not allowing us to address the real feelings of real, actual people. No, it's not. And it and it leads to that sense of 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 division which feels more or less more or less permanent which i don't think is the case but it's it's been heightened by the way in which the media now has become a means by which to whip it, to whip up this kind of frenzy and this kind of hysteria social media included of course but i think the i think the worries on both sides are very real you know you look at the 20 somethings right who have signed on to socialism their minds having been infected with the idea that socialism even communism is a viable alternative to capitalism or even a superior uh, alternative to capitalism because they don't know the history, they don't know the reality of countries like uh, Cuba, Venezuela, uh, Cambodia in the past, and the Soviet Union in the in the cold in, in the Cold War days under Lenin and Stalin and others. But what drives them is a deep anxiety about where their future lies. You know, when you have an entire generation, Glenn, who are saddled with you know, five-figure student debt coming out of school and who have that millstone around their necks which they can't escape and in which their earning power in real terms is reduced in order to, to, to serve that, uh, who have a feeling that the degrees to which they were convinced by their advisors and by universities that they needed to get in conflict resolution or sociology or international relations is actually not going to get them very far anywhere mm-hmm. uh, to solve the problems of where they want to go and the life that they want. They're going to look to government to solve that problem. And then you look at the people who supported Trump and who still do in the sense that they were abandoned. Trump calls them the forgotten man. Right, borrowing a term from our friend Amity Schles, mm-hmm. that the forgotten man of the 1930s is now the forgotten communities in America's heartland in the 19 in the 1990s and the 2000s, and for them, uh, what they see is just as you were saying, is an America that they grew up with, America whose promise was part of the way in which those communities lived together and were able to find solidarity, being pulled apart being denigrated, being attacked from the opening moments of uh, of an NFL game to the way in which uh, immigrants and illegal immigrants from stream across the border and are considered by one political party as more va- their lives more valuable and their their welfare more important than those of their fellow Americans. And you are you are definitely having a setting up a situation, a formula for uh, some really serious uh, social and political conflict, and and that's kind of where where we're stuck right now. Not you, forever, but you, this is where we are now. You know better than uh, most. The one thing we haven't injected into this is real fear, like a war. I mean, you know, you you wonder how. Anyone could believe that aliens were attacking, uh, you know, when Orson Welles did War of the Worlds. It wasn't that the medium was 
it wasn't just that the medium was new. They were used to hearing all about this foreign en- uh, enemy that was going to be invading. And it the fear lived. Uh, they were living it daily. Plus, you add into that any kind of economic collapse. We don't have the infrastructure anymore. I mean, the the personal infrastructure anymore to be the people that we were that our grandparents were. No, we face some enormous challenges, Glenn, and and I've been talking about this. You know, The Freedom's Forge is a book which is now really beginning to grab the attention of policymakers at the Pentagon uh, and elsewhere. And two weeks ago, in fact, I was at a meeting at the National Defense University organized by the Pentagon's Office of of, of Net Assessment which is the one that looks, that's the office that looks ahead, what's coming up on the horizon. And the discussion was, would the United States be able to mobilize in the event of a protracted conflict with a near-peer competitor? And they brought me there to talk about it. Freedom's Forge has become very much sort of, uh, one, of the, one of the key texts for discussing these issues about mobilization at the Pentagon, uh, also at the White House. And it's very gratifying to see that happen and know that your words can have an impact, you know, uh, on where policy is going. But what I stress to them is I said, look, from the point of view of mobilization, we've got two issues. One is on the technical and the industrial side. And there's a, there's a host of reasons why this is going to become a challenge. You know, our traditional defense industrial base has decayed. There's no doubt about that. We're going to have to look in World War II, we had the industrial base that was necessary yes. and sufficient yes. to mobilize. Today, we're going to have to have a global supply chain and look to our allies to help. That with the new technologies that under that underpin weapon systems of the future, AI and quantum mm-hmm. technology and 3D printing and robotics, that we're going to have. This is a whole different way of thinking about what an industrial base is. We'll have to look at commercial companies. But Glenn, the other thing that I stressed to them was the real pro- obstacle we're going to face is not in the industrial economic area; it's in the cultural area. In World War II, when Bill Newton, as I described in my book, went to see meet his fellow colleagues in the auto industry and their suppliers and said, we mm-hmm. need you to help build planes, to build parts for planes, to mm-hmm. build tanks. They said, Bill, we'll do it. Our country calls and we'll answer. I don't think we have that kind of response from our leading industrial and economic so powers today, especially in, in, in Silicon Valley. If you look at what Google did with 3,000 employees protesting the, the Google's contract to work with the Pentagon and oper- on Project Maven and saying, we don't want to go in that way. And then on the other side, you've got Google building in China yes. an AI research center hiring Chinese research, research uh, scientists who are going to be developing AI they're going to be using for their military. We have a problem. Arthur, and, Arthur I have to and, tell you something. You're going to love my new book. You and I should okay. be best friends. I don't know why. <laughs> you, you, you are concerned with exactly the same things I'm concerned about. Uh, I know this has taken a long time for some reason. Uh, maybe it's our fault of getting you on the air. Um, but I would love to, A, I'd love to invite you back just to talk about Freedom's Forge. And if we could do that soon, that'd be great if you have time. Uh, and I'd, I'd also like to, to do that. I'd like to bring you down and just spend a few hours with you uh, on air because you are, you, your voice needs to be heard. You have the history to back it up. Uh, and we are facing things. I mean, when you start talking about 
future wars and and uh, tech in Silicon Valley, you are right on the money. Uh, and I don't yeah. I don't know what to do about it. So, well, I think we should really talk about this and, and get your audience involved with this, too, because we are facing a high tech STEM crisis, you know, science, technology, engineering and math crisis oh, that is really going to affect uh, how we're able to handle national security issues in the next decade. Okay. Arthur, this is something that needs to be addressed now, let's, the Pentagon is getting its mind around it, but we need to get the American public behind it. Uh, let's. I've been talking about a Manhattan Project for this very thing. Uh, we, we'll uh, hang on the phone. I want to get some information from you, and we'll, let's book you uh, for to spend some more time with us. Arthur Herman, on call. Uh, uh, the Hudson Institute, uh, author and historian. Read Feed at Freedom's Forge. It's fantastic. Read it. Nice. Get a room. Um. <laughs> <laughs> he's I mean, awesome. He's, he's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like he it's, knows everything. Yeah. Mm. It's like talking to a smart me. <laughs> I have no Somebody, experience with that. That's so yeah, weird. I know. It's yeah. well, you just heard it. That's he's a smart me. He's got the facts. Right. You know. All right. Anyway, uh, Simply Safe Home Security, great <laughs> security system, fantastic protection, really easy to use. There are no contracts. There are no wires. Now, if you're still using, you know, a hardwired security system in your house, you know, good luck with that. That's, you know, it's cute and everything. Yeah, I mean, uh, no, I mean, you know, for a while, you know, my grandmother had uh, one of those uh, washers that had the rollers on top, too. You know, <laughs> yeah, she had one of those. And then maybe you would advance from you that. You graduate. Wanna, yeah. You know, grandma you... was like, well, I'm comfortable with don't get your fingers near it. It'll squash your hands. <laughs> OK, well, grandma, they they do have washing machines now where all that's enclosed. Hmm. But she wasn't ready for that yet. And maybe you're not ready for, you know, actually state of the art technology to protect your home and family. Simply safe, comprehensive protection for your home, for your office, uh, for your store, whatever you have that you need protecting round the clock uh, home security for fire and police. They'll dispatch whatever you need. Simply safe works during power outages, down Wi-Fi. Even if somebody comes in, and tries to smash your keypad. It is intuitive. It is easy. It's almost invisible. There's no wires and no contracts. Fourteen ninety nine a month. That's just for the monitoring. Cancel at any time. There's no contract, uh, and you own the system. Check it out now. SimplySafeBeck.com. That's SimplySafeBeck.com. Welcome to the program. I'm. Uh, I feel like I have a new friend. It's nice. Yeah, someone uh, who likes you and seemingly would actually admit it, which is rare. Which is very rare. I mean, even from people that you work with, who have worked <laughs> right. with for 20 years. I don't know. I don't work. Th- those people won't admit it. Th- those individuals. Who are you speaking about? I mean, 20 years, that's pretty specific. Sure, yeah, it's been yeah 20 years this year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 20 years lost, when you really think about it. Uh, 20 years down the drain. Really the has whole, been the lost 20 years, has Yeah, half my life <laughs> uh, down the drain and gone forever. <laughs> yep. Yep. And the good news is? You'll just keep taking it. (laughs) We have a really, we have an amazing story to tell you Uh, coming up next. um, Just hero story after hero story after hero story. You're going to love it. It's coming next. Glenn Beck. It's Tuesday, August 21st. This is the Glenn Beck Program. My hands shook in terror as a barrage of sniper and military gun rounds pinged off the friendly Iraqi army tank, our only refuge, and slammed in the ground around us. 
The tank's exhaust singed the hair on our hands and our arms as we scream for the little girl. Crawl to us. Ta'al, ta'al, come here, come here, we shouted over the roar of the ISIS bullets and air bursts from friendly artillery smokescreen. We were less than 20 feet from her, but we might as well have been on another planet. The tank fired its main guns, blowing a hole in the former hospital from which we were taking most of the gunfire. Boom! The sound was deafening, replacing the battle's cacophony with painful ringing in my ears, but the little girl didn't even blink. She's in shock. Somehow she had survived the massacre when ISIS had opened fire on civilians fleeing the city. It was almost two days ago, and now, in a pile of rotting corpses, she huddled next to her dead mother's body, suffering an even more cruel demise under the relentless desert sun. No doubt ISIS had left her as bait, and we had taken it. But we were her only chance. I'm going to get the girl, I called to David, our team leader. No, 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 he grabbed my arm. There's not enough smoke. In spite of the adrenaline coursing through my body, it only took me a fraction of a second to know he was right. I would have been shot to pieces. David, who's borderline fearless, had seen a lot more combat, knew what he was doing. I decided just to shut up and let him give the orders. He pulled out his cell phone and called the U.S. military commander stationed several miles away. We need more smoke, he yelled over the noise and shoved the phone back into his pocket. Get ready to give me some covering fire when the smoke comes in. Copy that. I turned to Sky, a former Marine and a team member who, like the rest of us, had volunteered for the suicidal rescue mission. We'd all seen the aftermath of ISIS massacres, whole families, babies even, slaughtered in the streets. You go inboard, I'll go outboard, I said, meaning that Sky would take one step out from behind the tank to shoot, and I would take three so that we'd avoid each other's field of fire. Roger, Sky nodded. Since the assault on West Mosul exactly 30 days ago, our team had been through a lot, but we knew how to work together. Seconds later, a round of smoke hit right on the target, sending a hundred balls of fire harmlessly into the middle of the war-torn and body-strewn Mosul Highway. Beside the Iraqi tank, the only support we had left, like the rest of the battles to retake the city, the fiercest urban conflict since World War II, this was an Iraqi ground forces operation. We had only volunteered to help. There was no cavalry to call in. It was just us, a few AK-47s, the tank, and some smoke. Okay, guys, wait for it. David grabbed my shirt and glanced around the tank. Suddenly, he sprinted off to get the little girl. Sky and I jumped from behind the tank and started dumping rounds into the ISIS-held hospital, which was still visible through the smoke. My ancient AK-47, a subpar weapon at best, and not what you would expect a former Navy SEAL to carry in a showdown, was full of tracer rounds. As I watched each of the bullets streaking through the clouds of smoke and arched into the dark windows of the hospital. Whoever was firing from that position only moments ago was now taking cover. But there were dozens of other windows we weren't hitting. If a sniper had me in his sights, I was toast. We all were. As a member of the Free Burma Rangers, I'd been preparing myself to be okay with death. Because this rescue, this battle, and most importantly, these people, were worth it. But in order to understand that, you must first understand where I come from. And how I came to this moment. Ephraim Mateos, that is the city of death. It's a new book coming out, Humanitarian Warriors in the Battle of Mosul. Ephraim is joining us now. I, I saw you in a, I saw you in that battle. The world saw you in that battle. 
um, you were shot in the leg right after that in a video that I don't even know how many millions of downloads it has now. Yeah, there's probably a hundred million views out there just yeah. from the different from the different sources. Yeah, and you, everybody remembers it. You, the three of you, were standing behind this tank, and uh, your leader David, who you say is uh, borderline fearless, some might say borderline insane. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's a fine line. Yeah, he went uh, <laughs> he went and got this little girl, and you. You saved her, and you, as you were moving out, you were shot in the leg. Yeah, a bullet went through my uh, through my right calf. It was uh, as as far as gunshot wounds go, is it, it was minimal. Went right through the leg. No, uh, it, it didn't hit the bone, didn't hit any arteries. So, I was very lucky. Yeah, so a band aid in your movie. Yeah, on. a band aid yeah. was fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you say you have to know where you come from, and you were a Navy SEAL, and you were tr- mm. you had gone seen uh, battle and. Mm. Uh, you went back for more training, et cetera, et cetera. And you were kind of, you, you went into a really deep depression mm-hmm. at that time. How come? I did. I, um, I, I joined the military very, for very idealistic reasons. I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to help other people. Um, and I wanted to do that as, as a soldier, sort of representing my country and representing good, if you will, on the battlefield and go to places where other people necessarily can't go. And so when I was in the military, you know, you, you specifically the SEAL teams, you have this 18 month workup that you do, you're just training, and then you do a six month deployment. Now, during that six month deployment, you may or may not, you know, be sent on actual combat operations and things that you signed up to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I got to do that. I got to experience that. But there, during my, during my time, it was just, it was, there was a lot of training, which you, you, you need to do that to be good. Right. If you want to be, if you want to be a SEAL, you got to train hard. Um, but it just wasn't quite enough for me. And I felt like, um, I felt like I could do more. I felt like I, I, I wanted to every day wake up and go do something to help other people and not just train over and over. And again. so that's when you, um, that's when you joined the free Burma Rangers. Yeah. About, about a year and a half ago, my time in the Navy, um, ended and I was in the Navy for about six years, four months. And then, uh, right after that, I went and I wanted to do, um, humanitarian work sort of in, in, in a combat zone and that sort of thing. And the free Burma Rangers were doing that. And, um, it was, you know, volunteer thing. So I just showed up and, so uh, when you were there, you, you're not allowed to, you're not going in on, on, uh, missions to, uh, do assaults. You're there for humanitarian reasons. You're in to go get people. And if you have to provide cover or take people out, you know, to be able to provide that, you know, oh, to get yeah. those people out, yeah. but you're not a, it's not a, it's not an army. No, no, not right. not not in the slightest. It's right. it's you know it's it's strictly humanitarian. Mm-hmm. But you are operating in in a war zone, and you have a few guys who are former military. Uh, David Eubank, he's former uh, you know Army SF Ranger. Can you talk about him for just a minute? Yeah, absolutely, he's, absolutely. He's a guy who uh, I think is is remarkable. Absolutely. I mean, he's he just goes to the worst place and takes his family. Yeah, yeah. He well. With the family, they try to they try to keep them back. You know, obviously they're not. Yeah, out, they're I mean, not on the front line. Year old son Peter's yeah. not out there, you know, <laughs> right? With an AK, um, yeah, and that's certainly a little bit. Let's uh, that, that's certainly a little bit controversial. Um, but seeing them and, and how they operate and what they do, I um, you know I, I think it's a good thing. And they keep the family back. Like I said, yeah, and, I don't want to concentrate on the. Fa- I didn't mean yeah. that to okay, be okay, the okay, controversial okay. part. Yeah, I just fine. mean that he is. He and his family are mm-hmm. so dedicated. It's and it's not a. It's not a. Uh, yeah, we love war. I love the smell of napalm in mm-hmm. the morning. It right, is. Right. They are deeply, profoundly 
Christian. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, and yes. they feel led by God to do these things. Yes, absolutely. David is probably the most devout Christian I've ever met in my life. Um, if you ever speak with him, he'll probably pray before before you start talking, and he'll probably pray after you finish talking. He just he just loves to do that. Um, his his faith is what drives him and what drives his family to do what they do, and and they love what they do. They're passionate about what they do. They've been doing this for twenty five years, I believe, with the Free Burma Rangers. That was when it was started back in the back in the nineties, and um, yeah, and, and they're, they're the real deal. It's not it's not a short term. You know, sort of a quick adrenaline fix. Quick adrenaline fix. They 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 do this, and they've been doing it for you know over over two decades now, and it's it's their lifestyle. It's what they do. So you just got back from uh, Myanmar, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, I know very little about it. I know mm-hmm. that there's the Karen people, right? Yeah, the, Karen is is used Karen. How it, yeah, and and tell me about them. So the Karen, they are a ethnic minority that's inside of Myanmar. So also one thing with Myanmar that other people don't know is um, Myanmar was originally called Burma, and the the sort of illegitimate oppressive government changed the name from Burma to Myanmar, sort of their way of erasing history. Okay, um, which you know there's obviously a commonality. Evil okay. people tend to do that, right? Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> and so they're trying to sort of erase that history by calling it Myanmar. So everybody tries to call it Burma if you if you. Okay, you know, if, if, you're, you if you're calling it out, you know, you call it Burma. Okay, and, um, and there's bad ethnic, ethnic cleansing going on there. Yeah, that's been going on. So it's it's a civil war that's been going on for about 69 years right now. So literally as soon Holy as... Holy cow. Yeah, it's, it's, the long, it's the world's longest running civil war. As soon as the British left in 1949, um, essentially the, the ethnic Burmese, who are the, who the ethnic majority of the country, they were left in power because before the British had shown up, it had been a Burmese sort of monarchy for mm-hmm. a thousand years before that. Mm-hmm. So, but, but, but the ethnic minorities, specifically the Karen and the Kachin um, on sort of that North um, Eastern portion of Burma, um, they had had some sort of liberty. They had, they had felt liberty under the British, under the British rule. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't want to give that up. They didn't want to sort of be um, second class citizens underneath these ethnic Burmans. So long story short, the Burmese, the Burma army launched a campaign and has, it's been a full on war for 69 years um, to get rid of everyone else that is not ethnic, Bur- ethnic Burmese or uh, Buddhist. And it's, it's one of those things where if, if these people decide to sort of bend the knee for, spe- uh, for example, the Karen, like if you can be a Karen person and live in Yangon around the Burma army, they don't care, but you have to understand that you're a second class citizen. You don't get the right to vote. You don't get the right to, you know, to, to move up in government or anything. It's like very that. much like ISIS. You just pay the oh when, the, the tax and, exactly yeah. exactly you pay the tax and like we'll leave you alone yeah, right yeah exactly right. it's it's very very similar to that so I you know you don't think of of Buddhists as you know mm-hmm. people that are trying to commit genocide yeah you yeah. just don't think of that right right you, know, right you always think of like you're peaceful Buddhist and you know you get along with everybody and right. you know rub the little fat belly and everything is great yeah 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 uh, that's not the case here now the, are they they're rounding up these Christians are they in camps or are they just What's how, so, how how are they doing the genocide of the Christians? So, so the, the the genocide, the way it works is it's instead of um, sort of an ISIS tactic, like you know ISIS, they do sort of a blitzkrieg, right? They yeah. go in and they just go and slaughter everybody. The Burma army attempts to do that as well, but you're dealing with the jungle. You're not dealing with the you know the flat Nineveh plains. Yeah. It's very different tactically. So what they do is they go into villages and they attack the villages and kill everybody that they can, men, women, kids, animals, everything, and they try to push these people out. Um, and it's usually village by village, very, very small movements. And then as soon as the Burma army leaves that village, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll leave landmines in the village. So that way, mm. when the people try to come back, who've, you know, run into the jungle because they saw them coming, 
when they come back, now they're stepping on landmines and there's a bunch of other issues. Um, and that's, that's sort of the way, the way that it's been working now, as of recently. And so like last year they hit the Rohingya and like a full who are, who are mostly Muslim. Um, they hit them with a full scale, um, onslaught, sort of a full scale, um, attack, which they've done against the Quran back in the nineties. And it's looking like they're going to start doing again here very soon. They're also, they moved the same units that attacked the Rohingya and displaced about a million people. Um, they moved those same exact military units up to the north of Burma to attack right now the Kachin, who are about 90% Christian. And then the Karen, they've already started moving troops down, and it looks like they're going to hit the Karen. I don't think people understand that uh, right now, uh, Christian persecution around the world is at its apex. It, oh, uh, yeah. It has not been like this, I mean, really since the time of Christ. Yeah, it, it it is interesting. Um, well, you know, a, a very a very Christian thing is you know where the, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, right? And people don't like liberty; they don't want you to have your liberty, mm-hmm. and so you have to get rid of the idea that all men are created equal, right? Mm-hmm. You have to get rid of that idea um, that our founding fathers had, and and you have to get rid of those Christian principles if you want to control, yeah. you know, if you want to control people. So now the Nazarene Fund, you're doing work with the Nazarene Fund, yes, and you're bringing the Nazarene Fund. To Burma, I'm bringing the Nazarene Fund to Burma, and it's it's been uh, it's been absolutely incredible. I'd been vol- doing some volunteer work in Burma for a few months uh, at the beginning of the year, and then actually David Lopez, uh, another SEAL, uh, he he heard, he heard about what I was doing. We've sort of been in contact on and off for about the last year and a half after he's the rescue an video and stuff. Yeah, he's he's, he's great. like he's like the most gentle bear ever. Oh yeah, he's he's a big teddy bear. <laughs> yeah. I, actually, I actually ran into him at the airport uh, the other day. I was flying to New York City and he was flying to he was actually flying down here to Texas. We, we literally crossed paths at the airport. Mm. We had the same uh same gate. They were right next to each other. Um anyway, so um yeah, he he got me in contact with the Nazarene fund and he said, "Hey, there's some guys I want you I want you to meet." So I flew out to Salt Lake City and met the guys from Oh, you are met Tim Ballard, mm-hmm. met all those guys. Yeah. And, um, then I got a call from, uh, uh, Rudy, I call him uncle Rudy, yeah. Rudy Atala. Yeah. And, uh, he's like, Hey man, we want to get, we want to get you on the payroll and, and continue expanding what you're doing already over there. And so uh, what are you going to do with the Nazarene fund? What is that? What is that? Uh, uh, what are you going to do for the Christians there? Right. So, uh Sticking with the traditional role um, that that um, the Nazarene Fund has been doing sort of in the Middle East with trying to rescue people, you can't quite do that in Burma. It's not quite the same mission. Um, the mission there is definitely to save lives. So our big thing that we're trying to do is we're going to, um, and we're in the process of setting up a communications network, sort of an early warning net, if you will, so that way the people in these villages have a little bit more time to know when the Burma army is coming and we're going to get them some, some basic equipment and things like that to sort of predict when these attacks are going to happen. Mm-hmm. That's one of the first things that we're going to do. So security is your, is your first thing. Um, also there are major humanitarian needs because, um, because the, the war has been so long, a lot of, a lot of um, NGOs are kind of getting, um, I don't know. No, I don't, I don't use the word bored, but they're getting um, fatigued. They're getting fatigued. Thank you. They're getting fatigued with it. And so over the last year over the last two years, um, a lot of support for the for the refugees and the people living on the Thai side of the border who have no place to go. Support for them has been dwindling. So we, I was just at the uh, uh, one of the refugee camps in Thailand, and right now in the little neighborhoods of that massive thirty thousand person Jeez. refugee camp, which has been there for about ten years mm. um, or longer, I believe, um, they're already having to start sharing food, and they can't accept anybody. And they can't accept any more people. I talked to the guy who runs the camp. He's like, we can't accept more people. Like they can come here for safety, but 
somebody's going to have to share foods with, uh, yeah, food with them, yeah. So if you would like to get involved, please go to mercuryone.org and uh, join us in our ever-expanding uh, quest to save uh, religious minorities and Christians that are in danger. As I've, I said, and this actually all really kind of came down to a rabbi telling me this. Glenn, stop talking about the Jews. You guys are first this time. We're behind you. We're, you're first. Uh, and that is true. Please join us with the Nazarene Fund. You can uh, find out more information and donate uh, at mercuryone.org. Thank you so much for everything you do. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Sponsor this half hour is uh, LifeLock. Public Wi-Fi at airports, great, but uh, hackers can get into the networks, any kind of uh, public Wi-Fi, and uh, as you're transferring any kind of uh, information, especially to a financial institution, they have you. That's why I want you to look into LifeLock. Lots of threats in today's connected world. That's why the new LifeLock identity theft protection adds the power of Norton security, which will help protect you against the threats to your identity and to your devices that you can't easily see or fix on your own. If you have a problem, they have agents that are going to work to fix it. Nobody can stop all cyber threats or prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But LifeLock with the new Norton Security can see threats that you're going to miss. So I want you to go to LifeLock.com right now and use the promo code back. You're going to save 10% off your first year. Plus, you're going to get a $25 Amazon gift card with annual enrollment. That's promo code back at LifeLock.com. 1-800-LIFELOCK. 1-800-LIFELOCK or LifeLock.com. Promo code back. Do you feel like a slug after meeting people like that? <laughs> yes. It's hard I mean, he's, to imagine we're the 20, same species. He's 26 years old. Yeah. He doesn't look old enough to to have the experiences that he does. I mean, and he's he got out of depression by serving people. Yeah, and he's accomplished more than oh my gosh. Know, we'll, we'll ever, ever do. do. Uh, it's interesting. There's a there's a some uh, you know a serviceman passed away the last couple of days and and. He had been deployed to Iraq nine nine times, mm-hmm. Iraq and Afghanistan nine times, and you know people were saying like, how can we be a society that would allow someone to be deployed uh, nine times? And we certain you know we should always strive to not ever have to deploy anyone who doesn't want to go. But there's we have met so many people over the years that believe so want. strongly in the freedom of others that they will be deployed every day to the end of their lives if they have yeah. to they, and they regret it when they can't when they can't they feel like i should be out there with my guys and uh, you know you i think you say you see that uh here as but well your life has meaning because yeah, he's not i mean he's not being deployed no he's not he's just doing it he's doing this is <laughs> he he's he he didn't work for the 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 free burma uh army he didn't work for them it's all volunteer the Nazarene Fund, he's going in by himself. He was just there in the jungles by himself, pulling Christians into safety and um, went over to the refugee camp to find out what's going on. He's going to do this by himself, a Navy SEAL, and uh, set this whole thing up. And I, I asked him, I said, so who's who's your team? And he said, I haven't selected them yet, but they'll all be they'll all be people, you know, Christians from Burma. He said, because they I, I want them to be able to stand on their own two feet in the end. We can't just keep paying for this and have Westerners coming over and helping them. They have to learn how to do it. That's phenomenal. Just phenomenal. Please get involved. MercuryOne.org. That's MercuryOne.org for the Nazarene Fund. It's amazing work. Be a part of it. 
So I thought we had, um, I thought we had a year to be able to do this, but I don't think we do. Um, you know, I told you about Abraham Lincoln's uh, all of his clothing that he wore the night of the uh, the play that he was killed at. You know, his gloves, um, all of the personal items, his hat. Those were all held uh, by a uh, private individual from the 1800s all the way up until recently. Finally came to the open market, was sold to the Lincoln Library. They paid $23 billion for all of this stuff. 23 what? Million. Okay. Okay. Right. That's $23 billion. No, $23 million. <laughs> that's a really That's a price hat, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is, I mean, this tells the story. They're about to lose it. They have... $10 million left on the payment. It's due next year. Um, and they don't have it. They have $5 million, they think, in matching funds from private individuals. They just have to raise $5 million. So we we started 54Lincoln.com. And we ask you just to give $5. And you can get on a renewal thing. So it's, you know, once a, once a month, um, $5 a month. To be able to preserve this history, this will go to open market and most likely will not be seen again. It was held for 150 years in darkness. It'll go into a private collector's hands. And I like things being in private hands, but only if they're being shown, this most likely will disappear. And it's sad. So please help us save uh, this Lincoln um, uh, piece of history that is just awesome. They have to uh, take it to the auction house, I think, by January, uh, even though they're a year out from raising it. They need to have a significant dent made by January. So please go to 5-4 Lincoln and, uh, you know, $5 a month or whatever you can do a month would be great. Help raise this cash to be able to save this important piece of history. Welcome, Pat Gray. How are you, sir? Awesome. I'm perfect. You? I mean, yeah, you see what same. I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Just like, wow. Yeah. So, uh, so Pat, mm-hmm. you're concerned today about. Uh, I, we've been talking about this for a long time, at least 15, close to 20 years, probably mm-hmm. embedding chips into uh, uh, people's foreheads or into their hand. Definitely not digital angel. Definitely, I mean, definitely, definitely not, not the mark not of the beast. Mark it's, of the beast. It it's is not. not. Mm-hmm. No, no. I mean, it sounds like it. it, Yeah. I mean, yes. It's exactly exactly what St. Paul described Mm -hmm. in the cave. But it's nothing. It's not. Because people love it. They love it. Right. They're not being forced into this. They're doing it willingly. Right. (laughs) There's a a company. Well, in China, they're being forced into it. In China, yes. And, well, a little closer to home, like Wisconsin. They're they're doing it there as well. Right. At a, uh, A surprise in Wisconsin, the progressive state. A company called Three Mark Three Square Market is mm-hmm. uh, it has two hundred and fifty employees, and so far eighty of them have voluntarily received the chip. Now, okay, it's super super convenient. Oh, it is. It's super convenient. Yeah, you yeah. can all the all the doors unlock mm-hmm. for you. Right. Uh, you just you, swipe your hand over the scanner. Door opens. Yeah, you come to your computer and it automatically puts in your passcode and everything else. It's you, great. You can go to the company's market and just swipe your hand and buy stuff. Comes directly out of your account. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. It's great. Really good. I mean, everybody loves it. And I, there's, I'm sure there's never going to be a time when that could go radically, radically wrong. 
Like, what do you mean? Well, all they're doing is uh, storing all of your information um, and your medical information, your uh, financial information, and, you know, just to have that implanted in your skin. Mm -hmm. I I just think it's nothing could go wrong there. We all know that the government will always be benign. All right. So here's the thing. And never work with these companies to gain our information. Right. Right. Okay. So here's the thing. The only trouble I could see besides this crazy talk that that's, you know, the beginnings Mm -hmm. of the mark of the beast is um, you could cut that out. So if somebody wanted to steal your information, you could cut it out. You need to have it. You need to find a way. So it fuses with the body. So once you have the mark of the, once you have the chip, right, it can never be removed. And digital agent, don't they have that? Uh, I'm not sure. Method? I think I, they. I'm not sure. I we haven't talked about this for a while, but I remember that it ran off your body's biorhythm. Mm. You remember that? Mm-hmm. And and they were concerned that somebody might extract it, and uh, they said it wouldn't work because it uh, becomes part of your body. It, ah, it's so it's good. So it wouldn't work for anybody else. Huh. So, um, all they have to do to track you is uh, put one of these inside of you. But you're not doing anything wrong. Why would you worry about it? Well, that's what the Chinese are saying now. (laughs) I mean, the Chinese are getting it. And China is saying, you know, the Chinese people who, Mm -hmm. by the way, um, lose social points. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw Black Mirror, but, you know, uh, China is doing what the Black Mirror um, uh, made you know, light of, you know, in some ways uh, brought to kind of the <laughs> that was light, <laughs> the tw- the twilight zone of this generation is black mirror. Uh, and it showed that, uh, you know, you'll get social scores. And depending on who you talk to, how you treat others, if you break any laws, if you, you know, are pedestrian and you're not using the sidewalk, you lose points. And that depends <laughs> on what you can access. Look, it's a it's a science fiction show. Well, I mean, except it's supposed to warn him some, you know, dark thing that could happen in the future. Yeah, and, except and it's happening. It's not going to happen. No, it's happening uh, now in uh, massive communities. Uh, the first trials started in 2016, and it'll be fully implemented by 2020 in China. And the people there, again, they lose points if they talk to foreign press and say something that's not good. Mm-hmm. Um uh, so, the, but they're all talking to the foreign press, and they all love it. Oh, they love it. They love it. They, they love say, it too. They, they love it. They're they not say, doing anything wrong. Why wouldn't they love it? They say now traffic is perfect. <laughs> Nobody speeds. Nobody does anything. Wow, it's, it's wonderful. Mm. They love it. By the way, this is completely unrelated. I want to make sure you guys know it's completely unrelated. But okay. you know, sometimes we bring up unrelated stories in the mm-hmm. middle of the broadcast. Mm-hmm. That's what okay. we do. We're covering mm-hmm. a lot unrelated, of mm-hmm. a lot of different topics. Right. Facebook has begun to assign its users a reputation score. Predicting their oh. trustworthiness on a scale from zero to one. Wait, that's um, exactly the Chinese plan. No, this isn't in China. This is in this is. Oh, here. this is okay. So oh, this totally is Facebook. Different. Okay, it's so here. it's in English. Uh, yeah, it's in, and it's in America. It's totally different. Uh-huh. Then you're right. Previously unreported rating system, which Facebook has developed hmm. over the past year, shows that the fight against the gaming of tech systems has evolved to include measuring the credibility of users to help identify malicious actors. I'm sure we're really none we're of these things are a the problem at all. No, none, none of that. It's all going to make our life better. It's all going to make our life more convenient. It's all going to be easier. I mean, Sam, all you have to do is comply. One of their software engineers, <laughs> Sam, says, "I use it ten to fifteen times a day." Oh wow! I love if it. Sam likes it. If Sam likes I mean, it, I feel like that's enough. Sam, for me. I am. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Mm-hmm. Right. It, wasn't he the green eggs and ham? Guy? Yeah, he yeah. won't try he, it with a box in a fox or something like that. This that's Sam probably will. what happened here, right? Like he wasn't going to try the digital implant, but then and he decided to try it, and he liked it. His friend said. 
Sam, try it, try it. <laughs> try it, I say. Comrade, you're going to love you like it. <laughs> uh, so I think it'll be good. I think it's all, it's all, it's all, it's, you so know. We've just become such sheep. It's just, it's just following what? each other to the slaughter. What are you talking about? Uh, it's, but it's so good. It is so good. I, I mean, it's problem. really convenient. I mean, you everybody know, loves convenience. It is. I mean, all of these things. We, you know, Glenn, we've done the show now for 20 years together. And Pat, you know, you were working with Glenn before that, and we've worked together for a really long time as well. And we've talked about these these developments over the years long enough now to be on record saying things that we do every day were incredibly mm-hmm. creepy. Like, we, you could go back and listen to those shows from 10, 15 years ago. We would say, look what they're developing. This is insane. No one will ever do this. And we're doing it right now. I mean, we, we're carrying we around mm-hmm. multiple GPS devices everywhere we go. Yeah. I mean, it, the things that well, we do, it happens so fast because it's so useful and so great. And that part, no, the part that we're already, mm, we're already doing it makes it easier to go ahead and implant it in your skin. Because you've already, you've already got trackers anywhere. Yeah. You've you got a GPS system in your phone, in your car. Mm-hmm. They can find you anywhere. So don't worry about it. Just put this in as well. And, uh, and then we'll find you when you're even not in your car or with your phone. Wait until so? they start to. This is why. Um, uh, I don't know if we left this part in. Did we leave the part in the book? Stu, you've read it. Did we leave the part in the book where I talked about uh, uh, the the merging of man and machine? Where there's definitely stuff in there about that. There. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you uh, know, when we when, while, yeah, when we get to the point to where transhumanism, mm-hmm. where uh, they say, "Look, you got to upgrade." You got to upgrade. Got to upgrade your memory. Because mm-hmm. if you don't upgrade your memory, you're not going to be able to stand a chance. Can't be left keep behind. Up. You yeah. won't be. Yeah, you'll be left behind. Your kids will have no chance. There's nothing. Look at, look at, we're sending our Everybody kids. Everybody will. We're sending our kids to college right now, knowing, knowing it is the source of most of our problems. And we are paying colleges and universities mm-hmm. to destroy our kids and our country. We're paying them. We're, we're enslaving our children to massive debt when we know it's not worth it. We know that's it's it's the ill effects and how they are coming out programmed differently. And we're doing it. You think we're not going to put chips? I, I bet we will eventually. Of course, of course we will. I mean, of course we, we will. We'll, do it within, we'll begin doing it within 10 years. I, I, we did shows about the cashless society. How many times have we used that phrase? And, and it's been obviously a, there are clear warnings about this. I have had we talked about this yesterday. I had four dollars in my wallet for a month. The same four dollars living in my wallet for one month, not more than four dollars, just four dollars. And I, I'm doing lots of stuff. I'm buying lots of stuff, mm-hmm. but I have four dollars in my wallet, and the same four dollars constantly live there. I have twenty <laughs> folded in my wallet. Mm-hmm. That's it, and I've had it folded in my wallet for maybe ten years. I mean, I don't <laughs> even know the last time you used cash. You don't use cash. We're in a cashless society. We basically are, right? Yeah. And that's that stuff happens. You don't even because re- it's so much easier. I don't want to get through change. What do I have to do with a change? And we always, these are not even serious concerns. <laughs> we always thought this was going to be forced on us, and it was going to be presented as if it were, you know, something sinister. Well, no, it's going to be presented as if it will change your life. It's going to help you. It's going to save your life. It'll save your kids. Because if anybody ever kidnaps them, if they have this little chip in them, we'll be able to find them wherever they are. Nobody can condemn your kids. But isn't that the It'd way? Be great. Isn't that the way evil always yes. wins? Yeah. I mean, look at this. You're going to college. Well, it's good. Your kids have to be educated. They're going to have mm-hmm. all these great opportunities. Well, no, it's enslaving them to debt. 
a lot of research shows that this is really changing our kids fundamentally. It's their stated goal to change our kids and make them less like the parent. Uh, and and we, we do it anyway. Look at all of the things that we do right now that we know are bad. This is a, we talked about this mm-hmm. a while ago of the, the 1984 versus Brave New World. Which one are we going down the road of? Both. Maybe both, but Brave New World seems more likely to me. Brave New um, World, I think, is I think everybody is declaring Brave New World, and even I did. Brave New World is the winner. You know, yeah, uh, I think it's more likely, but yeah. I don't know if it's the winner. Doctor Huxtable was right. No, uh, and that who wrote it? Yeah, yeah, I think it was Doctor Huxtable. No, I don't think so. Clifford uh, did that. He was a more of a medical so. doctor. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think he used Clifford. But uh, so anyway, uh, uh, Brave New World is is the way that we are headed. But there comes a point to where I think, and we're there. We are there. We're at this tipping point where people are like, I don't, I don't want to go forward with this because you guys are scaring me. You're seeing this with the Democratic Socialists and everything else. They, they don't mm-hmm. want to go there, but they also don't want to necessarily go back. And so they don't know what to do. That's the point where the New World Order and 1984 come in. Brave New World can take you up to the precipice, and then I believe it takes somebody to strong arm an event. And if that doesn't work, mm-hmm. they strong arm you into it and say, you're doing it. Because really, I've asked this over and over again, and, and we, we need to start asking people who are yelling at us, and we're talking in yelling at on Twitter. We need to ask ourselves and others, let's say you get your way. And you win all the elections. What's going to happen to the 50% of the country that doesn't agree with you? Mm. What are you going to do with them? Well, the Weather Underground had that all figured out. Yes. They are going to do some re-education camps. That's what China is doing. That's what China is doing. Yep. Thanks so much, Over a million Muslims. Yes. In re-education camps Uh, in China. Yeah. Is that a problem? No, no. Uh -uh. No. Not for me. But America has the problem with Muslims. And we'll get continually beat up about how we're hateful. Pat Gray Unleashed coming up on the Blaze Radio and TV Network. You can also get the podcast. And Pat also appears on the News and Why It Matters, one of the top podcasts in America. You can check that out on iTunes. Hiring is a challenge. One place you can go where hiring is really simple, fast, and smart. It's a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates and also used by uh, Fortune 100 companies. And that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash back. ZipRecruiter will take the job that you're looking to fill and send it over to a hundred of the web's leading job boards. That's what everybody can do. They don't stop there. They have matching technology. And so what it does is it looks at what your parameters are, what you're looking for, and then it scans thousands of resumes that are all over the Internet. Then it goes and it finds those people and say, you know what? This job fits you. Uh, You should apply for this job. The application comes in and ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and then spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. This is so effective, 80% of the people get somebody that is qualified within the first 24 hours. ZipRecruiter, highest rating hiring site in America. And try it for free right now, ZipRecruiter.com slash Beck. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Beck, the smartest way to hire, ZipRecruiter.com slash Beck. Glenn Beck. Stu, what is the problem? Global warming is caused by? Uh, CO2. And CO2 does what? It uh, w- well, it traps heat and warms the, uh, heat warms and warms the earth. earth. Of course. Uh, 
what is your solution to global warming if it did exist as they say i believe that the market and would develop uh, and scientists would develop uh, new technology new technologies and we would adapt where we could as well right and solve the problem cheaply over a longer period of time sure you know so tax won't work no okay. definitely not uh headline scientists find a new way to make a mineral which can remove co2 from the atmosphere <laughs> uh, it's interesting yeah there's a development right mm-hmm. that they didn't see coming mm-hmm. uh, that may solve the problem cheaply and easily mm-hmm. without trillions of dollars in global taxes and the good added benefit is uh if it goes wrong it'll just suffocate all the plant life yeah, but so, other than that, do you see any problems? I don't see any problems. Who likes vegetables anyway? Right. Freeze. They get in the way of progress. Glenn Beck. Mercury. Mercury.